Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. for joining us today. Real quick, the disclaimer, I need to put this out here, right? These are all my own views. I will talk about my experience, but of course, change names and uh, <laughs> companies to protect the innocent uh, and obviously not give anything away from current or uh, former employers. Uh, but I do want to tell you just a little bit about my background, not for any other reason other than to let you know what lens I see product management through. And so my experience really has gone from startup, large enterprise, uh, I've been in higher ed, I've held multiple roles, but the biggest thing is that I see products through the lens of B2B for the most part. And so a lot of this will be um, B2B, you'll, you'll hear my examples will be B2B, because uh, I don't want to take other people's examples. I do have a little bit of experience in B2C, but for those of you in B2C, you experts out there. Um, feel free to share with the group too, if we land on something where you have additional insight to share. So for, for when I was thinking about what I could possibly tell, um, you know, PMs from everywhere with all different types of products, uh, what are the principles that will really help you get through what is supposed to be a pretty deep trough uh, next year in the business cycle? And when I thought about it, it was really how to build resilience. And there's no, you know, one way we as PMs can all build resilience uh, in our roadmaps and in our products. But there are paths and approaches to building resilience that uh, will help us, you know, depending on where we're at, will help us sort of sustain and weather the storm coming at us in 2023. And so when we look at the principle, the six principles that I'm going to go through, one of the things I want you to keep in mind is you really have to look at where you're at and what you're optimizing for this year. If you're a new product and you're trying to get out to market, what you're going to be doing is very different than someone who is growing a mature product, maybe somebody who's looking at sunsetting one, um, sunsetting features and moving into something else. So take all these principles, apply them to what you're looking at, um, and hopefully you'll find some things that will help you get through choppy waters. So when we talk about resilience, just real quick, resilience is the capacity to withstand, recover, and adapt. And what that means is you're weathering a storm, you get knocked down, you get back up. And so when we're building resilience, what we're doing is we're building in the capacity to deal with unexpected change. But we, we really, in order to build in capacity to deal with unexpected change, you really have to understand your environment, the environment that you're in. 
And so we talk about as PMs, we talk about looking at trends, our environments, our competitors, we do market analysis, but what does that all mean? Like, what do we actually look at? Um, how does that impact us? And how can we kind of look out and see ahead uh, as we try to adapt and make decisions? And so when we do that, we understand, um, when we stretch, we can understand our environment more and then dig deeper and see how that's connected to us, how we get impacted. So 2023, um, really just like any other year, right? It's going to be full of uncertainty. Um, but this one's with uncertainty, ambiguity, which as PMs we're used to, but it's coming with a pretty deep trough in the business cycle for a lot of folks. So here are sort of some, some ideas uh, that I have. So when we look at product principles, really, if we take a step back and we look at principles for ourselves, um, really their fundamental beliefs, right? Something that guides us in how we perceive things and the decisions that we make. And if you think about it, um, let's say you have a principle that is, I always act with integrity, high integrity, and you find a wallet on the ground and it's full of cash. There really isn't a long time frame in your decision making <laughs> to go between, should I keep the cash or should I look for the ID and find the person that this wallet is for, right? And so when you live your principles consistently, it defines who you are, it creates, you know, it, it helps you decide what your behaviors are going to be, and it effectively really reduces your decision time and your decision fatigue. So when we talk about product principles, we're talking about the same thing here. We're talking about setting principles and guidelines specifically in this macro environment we're going into to help us weather the storm and make the right choices but also to reduce our decision time and our decision fatigue. And so here's an example. I'm sure everyone has seen this. Um, if you haven't, Slack is one of the, I mean, most like documented <laughs> product principles out there. And Ethan Eisman, who's the SVP of design at Slack, has a great article, which I've linked here, and, and, at, and I will share the slides in the community after this, but really talks about how they are meant to be cross-functional decision-making um, guidelines, right? And so don't make me think that's simple, that's intuitive, it's easy to use, it's easy to learn, uh, you know, is a Slack guideline. And that's formed who Slack is, not just as a product, but as a company, they really come together to make sure that, ev that everything is really easy to use, is intuitive, it's easy to ramp up. And so when we look at product principles for 2023, the first one that I settled in on, because you could you could have so many, and trying to pick ones that would apply to all of us from all of our backgrounds, this was my number one. Um, as Georgina said in the intro, I am very, very passionate about making things simple, easy to use, like Slack's product principles speak to me. Um, but the first one is embrace and solve for complexity. And that's really so your users and customers don't have to. And you might be saying, well, yeah, I mean, that's our job, Kirsten. Like, that's what we're supposed to do. But one of the things that I think is interesting about being a PM is we can get really focused and have tunnel vision on just continually optimizing the product we already have. We're just churning into like continually making this one problem we're solving better over and over again. And we rarely find the time, a lot of us anyway, rarely find the time to really come back out 
and look at the complexity that we live in. Our world is infinitely complex. Uh, the systems that our products exist in are complex. Uh, even if you have a game app, the system at which sociocultural economics are impacting whether somebody's going to pay for you know, something in your app or not, it's still complex. And so to navigate these complexities, really, we have to zoom out and look at them. So the first thing about embracing complexity is keeping a pulse on the macro environment. And I've picked five things from macro. I promise I'm not going to make you go back to like <laughs> collegiate macroeconomics, but I do want to point out a few things that's really important for you to keep your pulse on. You may have departments that do this for you. Um, for example, you may have a legal department, so you don't have to know that GDPR is coming. They will tell you, right? But for economic factors, this one's just, I, I think, is probably obvious to everyone. But when purchasing power goes down, spending goes down, which means revenue goes down, and we optimize for revenue in a lot of ways. And so keeping an eye on inflation, for example, can cyclical businesses take out loans can they borrow the money they need to continue to operate? If not, uh, their spending will go down. And the same for consumers. When we look at political and legal factors, we're talking about, for example, technology or compliance legislation. Um, as PMs, we really have to enforce compliance in our products. And uh, a lot of that sticks with data privacy laws and things like that. So you may have uh, teams that keep you informed on these. But for example, Section 230 in the U.S. is going to the U.S. Supreme Court in July. Um, and so that could have a huge impact on social media companies, on websites and what they display. So kind of having those and understanding what might be coming your way there is important. The same thing with technological factors in your macro environment. So if you look at an example of, excuse me, innovation and maturity, um, we have the rise of the internet was pretty big, <laughs> the rise of cloud computing, um, the evolution of AI, we have chat GPT now to play with, and our impending cookie-less world uh, coming next year. And so there are changes that are going to impact what we can and can't do with our products that we really need to know about uh, when we're looking at this macro environment. The ecological factors are important, um, especially for those who are working in hardware. So if you ship phones or something like that, the raw materials matter, matter your supply chain matters. Um, being environmentally friendly can really matter. Sustainability is a big piece of corporate social responsibility. And so in our sociocultural factors, we have um, our, you know, society is demanding that we have uh, sustainability or that we have goodwill from corporations. And Ryan Roslansky even said, uh, you know, those companies that put together doing well, doing good for the world and doing well in business are really gonna succeed. And so when we see those all together, um, they become really important influencers for where your product likely needs to go. Um, and then in the socio-cultural factors, I just wanna uh, call out one more thing in there. There is a huge shift. Um, the pandemic was like a huge light that shined on all of us where we came out of that and said, you know, life short, um, I want to work on something meaningful. And so meaningful work is one of the things you can actually give the world and your team uh, as you go through and prioritize. So the other thing that we're going to zoom in just a little bit more from all the way out there, and we're going to look at our industries. So again, I come from a lens of B2B. 
But when we're looking at industries and how the macro environment is going to impact them, there are some, you know, historically known recession resistant. I've seen them call recession proof. I don't think anything's recession proof, but recession resistant types of businesses um, and industry. And then there are cyclical, meaning as the business cycle goes up and down, these actually are impacted by that. If spending goes down, these companies, or sorry, these industries are impacted. So some examples of that, are, you know, maybe next year, folks, um, you know, there have been layoffs in tech. Maybe folks are not taking big vacations. Maybe instead of buying, you know, the luxury copy, they're switching to something that's more budget friendly. So discretionary spending goes out. And what's important about this is understanding where your customers sit. Um, trust me, your sales teams are already looking at this and they know. And so you can ask them what they're looking at, but they already know that, you know, government is likely or healthcare is likely to still have cash in their pockets and they're going to go after them. And then all of a sudden, really, you're solving problems for the ones that still have the cash. And you have to be really careful about, you know, losing sight of your long term. So... So that's that's why this is important too. Is suddenly your your pockets coming your way, the, the cash coming your way might be very a, a very small subset of your overall customer base. Uh, when we're looking at keeping a pulse on our buyers and customers, so again in B two B, you know you have your customers; those are the people that are purchasing, and then you have your users. In B two C, they're the same generally. So. I have a couple of different examples on here, but for example, uh, if we're looking at B2B, uh, you likely have some customers who have moved into operational risk reduction, right? They're battening down the hatches. They may have reduced headcount. If you're in tech, you have been living and breathing this news for almost the entire year. Um, they're reducing spend. They're consolidating tools and applications. Trust me, if you have a single problem solving even if it's best in class, a single problem solving point tool, um, B2B customers are looking for ways to cut costs and they may take the, the product suite that has not as great of a solution, but still solves the problem and for a lower cost. And so this is really good to know, especially as you're trying to really set yourself apart and differentiate um, with your marketing team, what, what your product value is as compared to say a product suite. Um, the other thing is, has something significant happened to your customers? So we talked about the macro environment happening to you and to your customers. What's what's happening for them? There are new laws going into effect around the country in the U.S. in January. Um, what is changing for them? And can you get ahead of that? And, and what I mean by that, I don't mean it to sound like... Um, you know, maybe there's new compliance laws. There, there are always new things for compliance. But here's a big one. In, in the travel industry for a while there, it was a shift in looking at sustainable travel. So not just looking at, can we get 100 million visitors to our city, but can we do it sustainably? Can we not wreck our communities when we're doing it? And that was coming down the pike. And as a product manager and products that serve that community, trying to figure out how I could best serve them in this new change and this pivot in their industry. And so it's a, it's a really big thing to look down and say, really what's impacting them and how can I help solve that problem? And then we talked about this earlier too, with the B2C, uh, you know, discretionary spending mostly gone. Uh, it depends, right? The interesting thing about B2C, if you guys have 
studied economics, um, when we have a recession or when we have an economic downturn, uh, think about what you do. Do you still save a little money for your vices and entertainment, something to help you forget right, of what you're living through? So interestingly enough, right, like alcohol goes through the roof. Um, the pandemic was tough and alcohol went through the roof. So uh, not everything goes away, but things to for your users' needs and behaviors, um, there are so many webinars, documents, articles, LinkedIn posts, whatever out there telling you what metrics to track. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this specific topic here on like customer engagement, acquisition, all of these ones. What I want for this particular slide is for you to understand that your users' needs and behaviors could have changed. Um, from a B2B lens, your sales and support teams are going to have some insight here. And so be besties. Um, they're going to have great source of information for you and user groups as well. But let's take, you know, the average marketer, maybe you do MarTech. And now uh, maybe there was a reduced headcount on their team. So they have to do more with less. They probably have to quantify what they're doing a lot more. And in marketing, if you work in MarTech, you know that can be really hard. Usually marketing budgets are the first thing to go in a recession or a downturn. Um, they may have new pain, pain points that have surfaced. Uh, what has changed? You know, you may have been optimizing towards pain points that surfaced in 2020 or 2021, and, and you're going into 2023, and those are going to be a little bit different. And so really coming back to see what, why are we losing a deal in B2B or why are we losing users? You can, you can see the flags if you're looking at product usage, customer engagement. You can see what's changing in your product. This is where you go get that qualitative information to really understand why. Um, the other thing too is like for B2B, even though uh, customers um, generally are not the same as the users, sometimes they are. And so if they get a company credit card and they can swipe and buy, you know, the, the um, UX design tool on their own of their own choice, that may change and go away too. And so keep in mind that uh, your users in some cases are also your buyers in B2B. And then the last thing in this particular principle is really, as you embrace complexity, taking a step back and looking at your product through a different lens. Um, if you're going way, way out, you're looking at the macro, you come in, you're an industry, you come in, you're looking at your, your product, your company, your buyers, um, go in just a little bit more and look at your product to see if you have some uncovered hidden value there. And what do I mean by that? If you've been in a product interview in the last uh, three, five years, you've had a question like this where they're trying to see if you can be creative about a solution, right? And so one of the ones I've I've received is you've been given 200 old laptops, what would you do with them? And everyone else, you know, the, the main answer everybody does is recycle, right? That's a given, but what else can you do with it? And what's interesting is we have the opportunity with the metrics that we can look at our product usage specifically, especially in complex systems where you manage a lot of features across many different personas, you can look and see, what they're using a lot. You can also qualitatively ask them, like what workarounds are they doing that are, they have filled their own gap. Users do it all the time. You've seen like the UX design where it has like the 
the sidewalk, but everybody walks across the grass instead and make their own path. I mean, users are going to do that. So finding out the workarounds that they're doing to fill the gaps you haven't filled yet uh, can be a way to extend your product. And then what, what other jobs to be done? I'm going to dig into this a little bit more um, in a separate slide. So I am going to move on from here into principle number two. Um, I'll probably pause around principle three, but let me know, Georgina, just feel free to pop in um, if you see anything that um, might be uh, timely for a question. So product principle number two, I think is really important. Be customer intimate. I do not mean fall in love, although you should, you should absolutely be in love with your customers' problems. You should be in love with your customers' problems. Um, but what being customer intimate means it's really around customer intimacy. And so it's understanding your customer's problems end to end holistically. And the reason that you want to do that is so that you can solve more of their problems. Now, I'm not advocating, I have this note down here, I'm not advocating for you to leave this session and go back to your leaders and say, we're not gonna make it through 2023 unless we change our entire strategy. We're not best in class anymore. We're a product suite. <laughs> like that's not, not what, I'm, what I'm advocating for. But true innovation comes from empathy. Satya uh, Nadella, uh, CEO of Microsoft has said that many times. And when we get empathetic with our customers, we can see from end to end all the problems that they need solved. We are not going to solve all of them, but it helps us solve more of them. And if we can solve more of them, we can increase stickiness, we can increase customer engagement, we can increase annual recurring revenue. There's lots of things we can increase, and I will show you in, in uh, additional slides. But um, your product provides value today. You know, this is not talking about enhancements of your existing problems you're solving, but stretching in to new problems to solve that are related to the one you're in so that you're providing a more holistic solution. Um, so when we look at, let me see here, um, why, why is it important to be customer intimate or have customer intimacy uh, in 2023? First, we talked about customers finding ways to cut costs. They may be switching from you know high quality, best in class to maybe cost leadership or suites. And I'm telling you right now, the product suites are coming for you. If you are a best in class, single problem solving point solution, businesses are going to be looking to find ways to see if they can condense how many vendors they have, how many tools they have. And so you're really going to be fighting for those dollars to hold on to that if you can't stretch into other places to solve problems more holistically. Um, now, if we're looking at here's where customer intimacy helps you win what this means is uh customer uh, i should back up customer intimacy means that when you know them end to end you can offer solutions that they may see as a one-time purchase it's not just a subscription they look at it at renewal time for upgrades they look at it as one-time purchases because you're watching as their needs evolve and you are evolving with them. So it's more than just optimizing the problem you're already solving. You're evolving to solve more problems for them. And it, it can increase your annual recurring revenue with those three areas. Um, it can increase your customer lifetime value. 
by them consistently increasing their ARR um, and the time, uh, the, the customer acquisition time. So, so when you do customer intimacy, a lot of times that requires you to sort of hone in on a particular group. Um, I'm going to use an example of a former employer. So Simple View um, was the tour and travel industry that I worked in, and I ran the um, flagship CRM product there. And what's interesting about that group is because SimpleView found a way to be customer intimate, they knew their customers' business inside and out so much so that they serve as advocates in the industry on behalf of their customers. And that just drives network effects like crazy. It increases the customer loyalty to a point where you actually have customer-driven growth where they're seeking, they're like, well, you're the solution provider. Do you have one that does this? Do you have one that does this? And that can actually decrease your customer acquisition costs by being customer intimate. So again, I'm not advocating for pivot your entire business strategy, but the more you know about the end-to-end, -end, the more you can extend into solving additional problems, as long as it still sticks with your product purpose, your product vision. Um, and then for product principle number three, Originally, when I was talking with Pragmatic about this, I had said like, you know, ruthless prioritization. I'm going to correct myself on a later slide here soon, <laughs> but um, this one is really don't lose sight of the long term. When we enter these periods of uncertainty, um, the waves are crashing against the boat, we're going through choppy waters and we think, well, we need to change our strategy. Not necessarily, right? If you look at Slack's product principles, those are likely not changing significantly in 2023 because it's who they are, right? And so what most what is most important in principle number three is that not only do you not lose, lose uh, sight of the long-term, but you still want to focus on the highest value that you can deliver. And the reason is, is the highest value matters, not just for your customers, but for your business, right? Everybody wants the biggest bang for their buck. And if we're not focused, we can get lost in the fillers. Um, we can get lost in the, well, we're just, look at all these updates we made. We made 27 updates this last sprint. If none of them mean anything and they aren't getting getting your company any ROI, it can be really tough to show that you're, you're proving impact. And we need to do that for sure every year, all the time. But in 2023, it's especially important. Um, so one of the ways to do this is, I, you, I'm sure you've heard of prioritization frameworks. You probably use some. You probably have some that are your favorite. Um, each of these that I have up here, I have used. I have found value in. Some of them I have used at the same time, depending on how I'm doing the work. Um, but the biggest thing to know is that when we're focusing on high value, we have to be able to back that up. And so if you're not currently using a prioritization framework, I really encourage you to start um, because one of the things that's going to lend you is I had a product mentor that um, used to say best notes wins. <laughs> um, and when you go into a meeting with your senior leaders, your stakeholders, and you have to talk about the whys, the what's, and the no's, um, you have to have supporting information to back that up. Your opinion doesn't matter. Um, to say, I don't think we should, is not going to carry any weight. Um, the only time that carries weight is when, when you're a hippo, right? You're the highest paid person, highest paid person in the room. So for this one, um, 
the example I have here is a value versus effort uh, two by two matrix. And when we talk about what we should do, we really are looking for those high value, big bets, quick wins. Um, and in these, I, I want to, um, well, actually, let me just look here real quick. Yeah. So in these, you guys have heard of like the jar, filling the jar with the rocks, the pebbles and the sand. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about that is you as a product manager can't shove all your big bets in there though, right? The rocks are your big bets. Um, the pebbles are your quick wins and the sand is the fillers and the stuff you should never do is not on here um, because you shouldn't do it. But um, when you're when you're filling that jar and you can't start with the sand or you can't fit in the rocks, right? I think you guys have heard this. Let me back up. The analogy is you fill the, the, the jar with your rocks, then with your pebbles, then with the sand. And that's how you sort of create the opportunity to go after big bets, quick wins, and the fillers. And the fillers are quite often user requests that make their lives easier, but do literally nothing for your ROI. And so really you're winning goodwill with those. They're low effort um, and low value. Uh, the sand rarely adds value on its own, but I have personally been stuck in a sand trap. I don't know if you guys have, but I have been in a prioritization where we're just like, taking the next stack of the backlog and shoving that in. It's like, look how many we got done. And we announced every sprint. We're like, Ooh, we did 27 things. And um, what, what was the value, Kirsten? Well, we did them. We delivered all of them. It's fantastic. Look at what we got done. <laughs> okay. when, we, when we prioritize output over our outcomes, that's, that's when we get into trouble. So you can't get all of your big bets in. But it's really important to make sure that you are prioritizing. And the reason is, is doing this can affect based on where you're at. So if you're focusing on gaining new customers, you want to prioritize acquisition. So acquisition might be part of a weighted prioritization system that you're using. So you see here under the value versus effort complexity, I've used um, product plan, AHA, <clears throat> I'm not trying to sell anybody's product, although if you're here, love it. Um, they have backlog prioritization um, uh, boards. And so you can go in and work with your product leadership, your sales leadership, and say what's important to us. And then it helps you rank. And then everybody can see it because you're bringing everybody on board. Why is that important for resilience? Because you really have to bring everyone on board. I mean, when you, you normally have to bring everyone on board just to get funding, it's going to be particularly difficult going into 2023 for a lot of us. And so having best notes really does win. I'm going to pause there, Georgina, real quick and take a drink of water. Um, any questions so far? Folks, if there are questions that you want to chat about now before we move into the rest of the discussion, please pop those into the Q&A. Uh, so far, Kirsten, there has been some really good discussion um, and a lot of validation as well about some of the points that you brought up. Um, a couple of folks attesting uh, to the transition from a best-in-class to a suite solution um, that is already appearing to be um, an area that is happening. Um, and then Sean also also recommended a book called What the Heck is EOS um, that goes into the rocks, pebbles, sand analogy a little bit and touches on it as well. I love it. Thanks, Sean. My favorite thing is books. I buy so many books, I haven't read them all, and I'm very glad they're digital now. So if anybody here 
uh, manages digital books. Thank you. Thank you for making it so I don't have to haul books everywhere. Um, that's great. It was called What to Know About EO EOS. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Um, and then we were also um, talking a little bit about um, career cushioning, um, which I think is a really interesting perspective on this conversation, looking at it through the lens of uh, organizational success and also looking at it through the lens of personal success, right? And, mm -hmm. and kind of comparing those things. But um, I will pose one question to you now, and then we can kind of circle back on some of those um, group conversations after. Um, do you have any tips about how you were able to get out of the quicksand and how you suggest that others avoid uh, getting stuck in the, the quicksand, as you say? Oh, yes. It takes time. <laughs> so I think one of the biggest things is, especially if you are in an organization where there's a lot of gut decisions, um, maybe there's a lot of decisions um, from your hippos in the room. Um, you can end up in sand too if you're really focused on, let's say, you're prioritizing the wrong metrics. So you might be prioritizing reducing bugs. Reducing bugs is not going to fix your customers' problems. They're going to fix your problems. They may fix, I mean, if it's a critical bug, yes, please fix it. But like, if you're trying to clear out the backlog because there's hundreds of bugs in there and it's tech debt, um, is that important? Yes, but it's a very quick way to get stuck in the sand trap. So what I have done historically is um, exactly what I'm putting in this presentation is to move outward and come back in again with best notes wins. Meaning when we are doing a presentation, I will be the one in the room saying, do we have the value for that? What's the impact of that? And one of the greatest things that, uh, that you can do is if the team is not used to that, or even your leadership is not used to that, trust me, your marketing team wants to know this information. So you can even say like marketing needs to know what value we are selling our customers and really get into um, bringing that to the table. I promise you, if you sit in meetings with your leadership team right now and they don't generally use data and you walk in with data, like here's the trends, here's what I'm seeing in the macro environment, you know, guys, cookie list is coming up. Um, and so I'm recommending that we prioritize doing this work before cookie list gets here so that yada, 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 you get out of the sand pretty quick with that. I think the other thing is when your rocks are your big bets, you gotta be pretty solid on your information, right? You do a great disservice to your engineering team. If you come and say, this is what we're doing, we're going to do this because the hippo said so. Really understanding what that big bet is and what you're trying to achieve and knowing what you're going to measure. If you know what you're going to measure before you build it, all your sand traps go away because like, what, what are you measuring if you, if you save somebody a click? Is it really, you know, it's not as impactful. Hopefully that helps. Sometimes when I talk about product, I ramble a little bit. Towards the <laughs> I think that's, I think that's maybe my favorite ramble I have heard in forever. If that's, oh, okay. <laughs> I think that that is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. All right, so let's dig into our last three principles. Uh, so principle four is make time for learning and thinking. And you're probably like, oh yeah, I know this. Like every webinar I go to, it's like, well, how are you going to be strategic? And I look at my calendar and I have a like a bazillion meetings. 
And like, how am I going to do this? I guess I'll do it on the weekend. Well, answer is no, don't do that. You still need the downtime. <laughs> but the first thing that I learned from one of my favorite mentors was one, to theme your calendar if you can. So meaning if you have a strategy day and you look at your calendar and normally Friday afternoons are the only time people leave you alone, make that your strategy, um, block that. Calendar blocking is important. If you don't protect your time, no one will, literally no one will. You are responsible for setting your boundaries and, and protecting your time. And what I think is interesting is we do all this learning. I think every product manager's LinkedIn profile out there says, you know, always be learning, uh, learner, uh, lifelong learner. <clears throat> we are always learning, but our brains don't connect the pieces until we stop and just think. And I will do things like, my husband thinks I'm nuts, but I will do things like get up at five o'clock in the morning and sit in the living room by myself and stare at the wall for a half an hour just to let my brain like take everything I've learned, try to digest it, relate it to something, connect it to something. Um, it makes all the difference in how you approach conversations with your team, how you approach them with your leadership. leadership. Um, sometimes I'll take a particularly tough conversation or stakeholder interaction from the day before, and I will sit and think about not just what I could have done better, but actually put myself in their shoes. So the next time I talk to them, I'm really connecting. Uh, so there's different things you can do there, but the, the hardest part for PMs is to make the time. You have to do it. I know you feel like you can't. I know you feel like, well, if they book over it, that's fine. If somebody books over it, move it, but make the time for it and um, make it non-negotiable. It will, it, it makes you like yours better at your job. Product principle number five. So actively engage stakeholders to align early and often. You might be like, yeah, okay, well, that's that's a given, Kirsten. Why are we talking about this? But in, in the best of times, you want to align early and often. In the worst of times, you really, really want to align early and often. And the reason is um, when you have participation through active engagement of all of your relevant stakeholders. Um, it is fundamental to building resilience. You're not just creating connections. You're not just aligning. Like you are putting the pieces together for everyone and you're serving as that one piece in between everybody else that understands what everybody needs. And you're building trust and relationships and trust also builds resilience. And so when we look at this, when I gave, um, when I was talking to Pragmatic early on, they were like, well, what would you talk about? And I was like, oh, ruthless prioritization. And then as I was preparing this, I was like, oh, that's that's the wrong word. That's, that's not right at all. <laughs> like, I really don't want anybody showing no pity or compassion when you're prioritizing. I promise you, if you're that PM that just bulldozes people, I mean, you might be getting numbers now, but eventually no one's going to want to work with you. So it's really, really important. It's not good for your sanity to walk around thinking, well, I'm in charge and this is what we're doing. Um, and it's, it's not good for your team morale. It's not good for your team's performance either. Uh, and if you wanna really build a high performing team and be part of a high performing team and be an effective PM, Ruthless is not, that's not where it's at. So it's really hard. We do have to say no to a lot of people that it's tough to say no to. 
And the number of no's we have to say is about to increase exponentially. And the reason is, is we may have reduced headcount, we may have reduced funding. Um, our big projects may have already gotten cut. Some of our rocks already got tossed out of our jars and we're down to sand and pebbles going, well, how do I make this meaningful? How do I make this impactful? Um, how, you know, my timeline's been shortened, whatever that may be. And so you guys see the guy with the cat, he's so sad. He's like, I just want you to make my reports easier. <laughs> I felt so bad for him. Um, but, you know, and then the lady in the middle is like, I need you to explain this to me. Like, why are you saying no? Um, so it's really important that we learn how to say no in the best way. And there's a lot of content out there. Um, I'm not trying to replace all of that, but this is what works for me in saying no. And really what it requires is that you connect all the dots. And so you have to understand what their goals and objectives are. Um, when you're talking to a cross-functional partner, uh, whether it's UX, engineering, um, maybe it's marketing, like what are they after? It, it will tell you why they're asking you for what they're asking. Um, what do they have to optimize for in 2023? What are their pain points when it comes to supporting your product? Um, and then how is 2023 impacting them? So when you go and you're declining or deferring, deferring is the word I, I learned that was like, you're not saying no, you're saying later. Don't say defer though, if you're really not going to do it, it's just better to rip the bandaid off. But if you're deferring or declining a product request, um, you're not, again, you're not in charge. You want to say no in a way that doesn't, what's going through their head, think about when you hear no, right? Like what's going through their head is I'm not important enough. You don't understand or you would agree. Um, this is super frustrating. And a lot of people think the problems that need to be solved is frustration. That's not the only problem that needs to be solved. Sure, we, we want to solve problems, but some of our solutions create new problems, right? That we have to solve. So when we connect your no, the why for your no to the larger picture and to that person and what they're asking for and acknowledge, like acknowledge if you saying no is making their life more difficult. It may, you may have had to pull a big rock out um, because you didn't get the funding for it. And it, it's a big no right now. Um, but helping them understand and bringing them along for the ride on that is how you can say a better no. The last product principle that I have is really important to me. I, I think building trust is one of the most important things that we can do as PMs. And I said, build trust you first, because sometimes, you know, the sobering reality is we don't have control over whether our companies have decided to allow hybrid, be full remote, uh, team autonomy, whether we have empowered teams, whether we get to work agile because we think it's amazing or we prefer waterfall over everything else, or we just don't have control over a lot of those things. But we do have control over how we honor our promises and commitments. We do have control over how we show that we trust other people, that they're going to bring, you know, show up on their side of the equation and get their stuff done. And when you have trust in your team, it builds a high-performing team because you have trust, you can actually openly disagree. You can openly have conversations that need to be had without everybody going, well, I guess we're doing this. Like the PM said so. Um, 
it has to be ingrained in our products too. If we don't have trust with our, our um, the businesses that we serve, our, our users, their data privacy, their security, I mean, just trust is everything. It is a foundation. So how do you build trust so you have resilience, not just in your roadmap, but as a PM? Um, one, with your engineering team, you are the voice of the customer and the voice of the business. And you have to come in hot on those. Like you have to know everything we've already talked about. You have to have looked at your metrics. You have to understand that if they built something, you have to give them the feedback. They have to be able to trust you that you understand the complexities of what, of what they're operating in in order to provide a solution. Um, your customers under, you know, need you to understand them. And that goes back to that customer intimacy. Like, I don't want to just assume how a customer should work because this is how I built my product. And so I'm telling you what you should do. And they're like, I, I, I literally don't have time for that. I'm down six headcount. I have two people on my team. Like, I cannot do that. Please stop telling me that this is how I must use your product. Is there another way around this? And really understanding and identifying what their, their problems are that you're trying to solve. And your leadership is trusting you to deliver. And one of the things that I think is interesting, like as a new PM for me, it's like, I can be a PM. Uh, I know the product the best. Just give me the job. I can do it. It's not about knowing the product best. It's about earning trust from your leadership that you're going to deliver what they need delivered. And in order to do that, you really have to step back and look at everything around you and understand that you are sitting in the middle of ambiguity, uncertainty, and complexity, and be the one that's like, I am going to bring this all together for the team so that we can move forward. And so that's why PM's jobs are really, really hard, because you have to know everything and be everything to everybody. Um, but that's why building trust starts with us. So if you are um, uh, you know, I've been in product eight plus years, but, but even before that as a business analyst and special projects. And one of the things that's, that's tough is I came from the, the butts and seats, right? That's what's productive. That's how we move. We're moving to trust, um, by looking at outcomes, right? And so as a PM, when we talk about build trust you first that can even be in conversations with your leadership when you, you have to say something is not done and not immediately throwing your engineering team under the bus because you know you didn't see them online all week right so be that person that shows the trust first and and it follows i promise you it follows and with that i say we really have to lean into the new way to work I know you don't have control over whether you get to be hybrid or not. I totally understand, but I can't sit here and tell you fully distributed remote teams are the best and so go for that. <laughs> but the more you show up um, for your team, for your stakeholders, for your cross-functional partners, um, and really choosing the meaningful work, make it meaningful for people to come to work. Connect the dots between the rocks and the pebbles and the sand. Like, well, we picked, we didn't just put the sand in because we had room. We picked these sand granules specifically because they relate to the rocks and the pebbles. Um, and this is where it's going to take us if we do all these things together. And it really builds trust and kind of, I, I feel like it helps the engineering team too start to see you 
sometimes engineering just doesn't see the value in a PM. They don't, you can go to any forum, right? And they're like, what do these people do? This is what we do. And so much of it is behind the scenes, but the way that we make it come out is to communicate and do what we say we're gonna do and build that trust with our, our teams and our leadership. I have to say, like, I, I feel so lucky to be at LinkedIn where Ryan Roslansky came out last year and was like, we trust people. We trust people to do the work wherever they're gonna do the work. And um, if you have the opportunity to work for an organization like that, I'm telling you, it really changes how the team can deliver. So here is my summary, Georgina. These are all of them, uh, all six. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me. I, I'm glad I actually found six. <laughs> it was really tough to try to find something that I think helps everyone, but hopefully you guys have found these actionable and useful. Uh, I think that that is a resounding yes. Um, I think they absolutely have been. There has been um, a tremendous amount of chat uh, in, in the chat box. I think that folks have really resonated with uh, the balance of ruthlessness of having to say no, but not living your life as a type A bulldozer uh, that sometimes you are pigeonholed as, or maybe um, maybe you convince yourself that that's what you're supposed to look like if you're in a PM role. So really balancing ruthlessness for your priorities with compassion and trust for those that you are working with and building relationships around. So um, I think that that has been um, a really, uh, really high touch point there in the chat. We do have a couple of questions that I um, would love to pose to you in the last couple of minutes here. Uh, so thinking about um, as you're trying to work with your stakeholders, right, do you have any suggestions for how to combat stakeholder fatigue uh, when your users are, are maybe a little bit reluctant to give you the data that you need to convince your stakeholders, right? So like when your users are like, I don't want to have another conversation, I'm tired of taking surveys. Uh, but you still want to come in with, with you know, um, top-notch notes to your stakeholder conversations. Where do you go from there? That's tough. Uh, one of the, so I have been there. And one of the ways that I ended up there is I asked my users over and over for their feedback. And then I didn't action on it. So the first thing I would say is preventative meaning it's great to ask someone for their time, but everybody has jobs, everybody has things to do. If your user is taking time out of their day to give you feedback, it's a gift. And you clearly know that because you're like, well, they're done giving me presents. Um, and so I've been there, right? It, it, you know, especially if we ask a lot and we don't deliver um, the, the, the solutions that they're needing. I would say this, I, I have you know, because you can't just constantly run user focus groups. You can't just constantly be sending surveys and surveys is like a whole other science <laughs> that, that needs to be done really well to actually get something actionable. So I actually make really good friends with my sales and support teams too. Um, when people are, you know, what are the cases coming in? What's the, what are the highest support problems that that you're running into, because if I solve that problem, I solve a problem for me too, because I'm gonna reduce the cost of my support team having to support the issue that my users continue to come up with. I've also gone into um, what I would call product education or like um, knowledge-based questions. And I will look for search terms, like what are people searching for? What do they think this product feature, you know, what feature do they think this product has that doesn't, you know, they might be always searching for graphs and your product doesn't have graphs. And you're like, well, okay, well, there's a thousand searches on that. 
and then sales. Um, if you're in B2B, uh, sales is really, I mean, this may be true for B2C too. I'm not an expert on B2C, but if you're in B2B, sales has a lot of the information about why people are pushing back too. If they're not going to come on board or maybe they're up for renewal. And in the renewal conversations, customers are talking about how they're going to pivot to a competitor because the competitor has XYZ. Um, so those are other ways to get user feedback is really depend on those front-facing folks at uh, your company. Yeah. And, and you're kind of touching on the sales team leads to another question that someone um, is curious about is how do you really foster a culture of customer intimacy in your sales team, right? Some of those frontline folks, how do you start to build that muscle with them? So it's, it's a really kind of unified approach between product and, and sales and maybe marketing other, other places. So I don't know if, if everyone can do this. I feel very lucky that I had this opportunity. Um, and I don't get to do this today necessarily, but in other companies, I have had the chance to actually go on sales on sites. Mm. And um, what's really useful about that and also high risk, I caution, <laughs> is if they bring the PM on a sales on site, you're going to get the questions like, we can just build that, right, Kristen? Like, mm, I'm not committing right now. Um, mm -hmm. um, but you can hear how sales talks about your product. So you could even do this virtually and say, I won't even ask you a question. I just want to sit on a sales call and hear what you guys are talking about. Um, and you can hear, hear how sales pitches your product. I remember the first time I went on one, I was like, wait a minute, this is how you guys are selling it? Like, I didn't know that was the value that was resonating. And I had to step back and go to my product and be like, I was not aligned to sales. Like I did not realize that that was actually what was selling the product. Let's focus there. Um, and so I think becoming a partner to sales means it's it's got to be a two-way street too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to be careful about going on sales on sites, but, but if you're allowed to sit in on a sales call, sometimes you can even go into your, your sales system. So maybe your company CRM and see sales notes um, and kind of, take your perceptions from there. Did that answer the question? The question was really, how can you build the relationship, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that answers it beautifully. Um, and, it, and it makes a lot of sense too, right? Really creating that connection, really creating um, more opportunities to, to see it in the wild, right? Um, and get that feedback coming through. Folks, Kirsten will be in the community answering some of these extra questions um, that we uh, sadly didn't have the time to get to. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll pepper her with questions about how do you give feedback back to product development after they create uh, a feature about how the customer liked it? How do you maintain a roadmap with your stakeholders? And um, what are some really great juicy places to get data that you need to have um, Kristen, Kirsten's top-notch notes? Uh, so we'll talk about all of that and more. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Um, there are dozens and dozens of comments in the chat that are just um, overjoyed to have spent this time with you um, and, and reset and prep themselves for the next year. So thank you very much for being with us, Kirsten. Yeah, thank you. All right, folks, uh, until next time, um, we will meet you back here uh, in January. Um, we are going to be chatting with the CEO and co-founder of GrandPad uh, about how to hit some really effective market research um, so that you can nail your positioning strategy. So a lot of what we've talked about here today, um, we'll be able to continue the conversation next time. So we will see you then. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, and again, Kirsten, delightful to have you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Georgina. Thanks, everybody.
Bye, guys. Bye.